Thank you for setting your podcast out of 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. The big day was over a week ago, but election 2020 rolls on. Several states are still working to finish their vote counts as deadlines for certifying their votes approach. Joe Biden has claimed the mantle of president-elect, while President Trump says not so fast, leveling allegations of voter fraud, filing court challenges, and taking direct aim at state elections officials. The president refuses to concede the race. And nowhere, nowhere is the president's challenge of the results having more direct political impact than the state of Georgia. And that's because Georgia's two Senate races are far from over. Both are headed for runoffs on January 5th. Senator Tom Tillis has been declared the winner in North Carolina, and Senator Dan Sullivan in Alaska appears headed to his own reelection, guaranteeing Senate Republicans 50 seats when the new Congress convenes next year. That means the Democratic challengers for the two Georgia seats Republicans currently hold would have to both prevail in the runoff to give Senate Democrats their own 50 seats and a tied Senate. But the Constitution made provision for this even-numbered eventuality, making the Vice President of the United States the President of the Senate with the power to break tie votes. Presuming that Vice President is Kamala Harris with both Georgia seats in Democratic hands, the Democrats would gain working control of the Senate floor. And that, dear listener, is why Georgia is rapidly becoming the center of the American political universe. Two Senate races, each with their own dynamics in a rapidly changing Southern state. But my accent was born in the Carolinas. So I'm very pleased to be joined today by a true daughter of the Peach State to help us break it all down. Patricia Murphy is the politics reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She's been a nationally syndicated columnist for CQ Roll Call and had reporting jobs for the Daily Beast and Georgia Public Broadcasting covering Capitol Hill campaigns and the Georgia legislature. Not for nothing, she's also written on topics as varied as deviled eggs and moon pies for Garden and Gun magazine. And when she's not doing all that, she runs a school for wayward children out of her attic. Patricia Murphy, (laughs) (laughs) welcome to 14th and G. That is literally the best introduction I have ever had. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yes, I joke that we we will have uh, a few open spaces at the school for wayward children because we're getting negative reviews from our customers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure with a little bit a little bit more work, you can you can up those numbers. Yes, it's all about the effort. Patricia, why don't we start by setting the scene? Uh, Joe Biden has about a 12,000 vote lead over President Trump with 99% of precincts reporting by the current count. That's about three-tenths of a percent margin in Georgia, a state no Democratic presidential candidate has carried since Bill Clinton in 92. The fight over the vote count has spilled directly into the Senate race with both senators calling on the Republican Secretary of State to step down. There may be a recount. Where does it all stand? So it stands at, I was talking to my colleagues, I'm like, you guys, it's like we won the pie eating contest and the prize was a pie factory. You know, it is, it has just gotten so overwhelming. There is such a fire hose of news information, twists and turns. It's actually hard to keep up with. Also, people are uh, the leaders of the state, uh, state Republicans, are behaving in ways that are extremely unpredictable, even for our state. Uh, there are there is currently a a bit of a 
civil war inside the Republican Party right now over the vote count here in Georgia. The votes right now are with Joe Biden. We This is something that we expected. We didn't know who would carry the state, but we have known for months that this would be essentially a tied election. All of our polling told us that. All of our anecdotal information told us that. We knew it would be very close. We also knew people would be watching the vote count very carefully because we have new voting machines in the state and we did have a number of problems in June. However, that was the primary. The November election went quite smoothly here in Georgia and had there not been complaints from the president, I think the governor and secretary of state would really be taking victory lap right now because it was one of the smoothest elections we've seen in a very long time. However, because the president is unhappy with the results, he has pushed a number of his supporters here in the state to also be unhappy with the results. We are where we are with a disputed election and a Republican Party um, at each other's throat. And headed into this, these runoff races on January 5th, and before we break down each of the Senate races, they're headed to runoff because Georgia requires a general election candidate to get 50%. I think Louisiana is the only other state that still has that majority requirement. In some states, it was a relic of the Old South when it was a one-party region controlled by Democrats, but it's a more recent uh, innovation in Georgia elections. Yes, this is just a relic of the early 90s here in Georgia, um, but it certainly was designed to maintain power for the party that held it. And in the early 90s, and frankly since the Civil War, it had been uh, the Democrats, a one-party state top to bottom for the Democrats here in Georgia, that runoff rule was designed to make sure that once you get into a runoff, a lower turnout situation, it always favors the party with the infrastructure. And uh, now Democrats find themselves on the other side of that equation. They're the ones trying to take power back. Um, but we will have a January 5th runoff for these two Senate elections. Right now, it is actually anyone's game. Well, it's it's a complicated race within a complicated system. So let's start with the more complicated election here. Senator Kelly Leffler, the Republican, was appointed by the governor to fill the remainder of Senator Isaacson's term when he had to step down for health reasons. So it's already a special election. But in another quirk of Georgia politics, even though she was challenged by fellow Republican Congressman Doug Collins, there was no primary election. They met on election day last week, along with every other candidate for the seat, Republican and Democrat. I, I believe there were about 21 candidates in all, what's called a jungle ballot. Senator Leffler and Reverend Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, were the top vote getters, and they face one another in the runoff on January 5th. So what are the challenges they each face in appealing to voters? Well, they each have unique challenges. Both of them finished you know, with a minority of the vote, quite clearly. Uh, Reverend Warnock won 32% of the vote. Kelly Leffler won 26% of the vote. I would say her greatest challenge is that because Congressman Collins got into that race with her, it very quickly became a no-holds-barred Republican primary inside of that jungle primary. So rather than having the leeway to say, I'm Kelly Leffler, I'm a business executive, which is 
what she had been coming into the Senate and really being able to appeal to moderate voters here in Georgia and particularly moderate suburban women here in Georgia, she was instead forced to have this primary challenge from the right, from Doug Collins, although it just became a race to see who was more conservative. Because Senator Leffler didn't have really a record going into it, she could she could paint herself to be any way she wanted. And so her calculation in that primary portion of the race was to be as conservative and more conservative than Doug Collins. And anybody who's familiar familiar with Doug Collins knows he is conservative. So you're going to have to get very, very far to the right. You're going to have to pull off some kind of superhuman feat to do that. And I will say Kelly Leffler did it. She, at every event that I covered of hers, which were many, described herself as having a 100% pro-Trump voting record, pro-guns, pro-life, pro-Second Amendment, and 100% pro-Trump. She ran an ad that went viral, and it was certainly meant to, that featured two um, ostensibly Georgian voters talking about Senator Leffler and saying, I, I, you know, I heard, I heard Kelly Leffler is more conservative than Attila the Hun. And the other, the man of the couple says, all right, you know, sort of nods in approval. Right. Well, that's a good <laughs> thing. I like it. Yeah. I like it. You know, and, ta- and says that she has the most conservative record in the Senate, which again, the Senate is not full of moderate squishes. You know, that's a conservative group. And she, that helped her very much edge out Doug Collins in the primary. But now that has created the situation for her where it will be difficult, if not impossible, to win over moderate and independent voters on her own message. She will now go after all of those conservatives who were for Doug Collins, all of the Trump voters, and we can talk about this, why those Trump voters are so important. She needs every one of those voters, and maybe a few she can get from uh, from the Democrats, moderates, and independents after a very, um, it's going to be a very aggressive campaign against Reverend Warnock. So she'll, she'll keep her conservatives and basically try and knock down anybody who supports Reverend Warnock, and that'll be her... That'll be what she needs to do, and that really is because Doug Collins got into the race and, and almost gave her no other And Reverend Warnock faces his own challenges. We've already seen uh, prior sermons come to light. There was an incident involving his wife and uh, and, and a car. I, I'm not I'm not quite sure all the background there, but that that sort of stuff is is already starting to surface. Yeah, that's starting to surface. That all surfaced during the primary, but because Leffler and Collins were going against each other so hard, that really took all the air out of the room for anybody else to focus on anything else. And so Reverend Warnock really was able to fly below the radar during the campaign. I have to add, though, he's very well known in Atlanta, of course, because he's the senior pastor of the Music Baptist Church, which was uh, Dr. King's pulpit, of course, here in Atlanta. He is a very well-known civil rights leader here in the state. The information that has come out about Reverend Warnock with his divorce and with his sermons, it certainly has not caused him to be an irreparably damaged candidate. He also had the benefit, while he was flying under the radar, he, he was able to raise quite a bit of money and then run a series of extremely positive bio ads and introduce himself Georgians without already being defined to Georgians, and candidates almost never get that chance, you know, so 
So Warnock has really strategically played it very, very well. We're going to hear those attacks about him, and we will certainly hear more. But those have not damaged him to the point that, from the outside looking in, people might have expected. Well, thankfully, Senator Perdue's race is much more straightforward. His Senate term is up, and he's running for re-election. He beat his Democratic challenger, John Ossoff, by about 88,000 votes last week. They go again on January 5th. The election last week also included a libertarian, which which may have split the vote a little bit. But why should we expect a different result on January 5th? Well, it's a great question. And I think this race is the one that's most affected by the fact that the Senate majority is in play. Ordinarily, I think you would see a rematch between two candidates nine weeks later to be just just that, a rematch between two candidates. However, because the Senate majority is in play, we certainly expect that race, um, as well as the other race, but, but really this race in particular, to get the strong messaging that the future of Washington is, is at play, that the future of the Biden administration is at play, the future of, of a series of policy proposals, healthcare, voting rights, criminal justice reform, that that's suddenly what this becomes about. And I think that will help John Ossoff in the way that we have right now a very, very energized Democratic electorate. And they were very energized, frankly, because Donald Trump was the president and then some other reasons. Now, without Donald Trump being at the top of the ticket, those Democratic voters are going to need some more other reasons to get back out and vote. And so um, I think it will help Ossoff in that way. But in the same way that it helps Ossoff, I think it can give a little boost to Purdue because Purdue has been quite a lackluster campaigner. I think it helps him to be able to nationalize this race and say, do you really want single party control in Washington? The White House, the House, and the Senate. Now you can expect the Green New Deal. Now you're going to get the wholesale change that you really just wanted to sort of have a nice, moderate, normal day at the office in Washington. And if you put it in single party control, it's going to get out of control. I think that's going to be a message that Purdue can rely a lot on. So that race takes on very different contours now that control of the Senate is online. Well, to that point, the Democrat Senate leader, Chuck Schumer, said on election night, uh, now we take Georgia and then we change the world. Perhaps ill-advised words from a New Yorker <laughs> to the state where yes. Sherman ended his march to the sea. <laughs> but, it, 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 you know, it just highlights what you said, the nationalization of these races and, and what Democratic Senate control is going to be portrayed as in the Biden administration, uh, ending the filibuster, court packing D.C. statehood, a lot of these issues that were litigated in, in, in the campaign. I, you know, these races being nationalized, how closely tied are they? I mean, is there, uh, is there an Ossoff Leffler voter or a Warnock Purdue voter, uh, out there? Can there be that many? I don't know that there are that many because, because Senator Leffler and Senator Purdue have so closely tied themselves to the Trump administration. I think they are seen as a package deal and a package deal for that kind of politics. Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff are both casting themselves as quite progressive. Not Medicare for all progressive, but expand the Affordable Care Act, add a public option, kind of that level of progressive, which in Georgia is 
progressive. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty far out there down here. So it feels to me like it's a package deal. It feels like this is a, a one-two ticket that people are going to go choose. It almost feels like a, a president and vice president that you're going to be getting. Not that either one of these candidates would be superior to the other, but they really are tied to each other. They know that. And certainly their strategists are approaching it that way. And I think voters are largely doing that. Although it'll be interesting with Reverend Warnock because he does not have a record and does not have a set of, of detailed policy positions in the way that John Hoffman does. Um, he has a little more wiggle room. And I'll be really interested to see how voters respond to him now that the focus is really on him and his race. And he's also leaned very heavily on his biography and leaned heavily on running <clears throat> as the pastor of Ebenezer at this time in American history. So he has a way of sort of breaking out of kind of the mold. And I'll be really interested to see what voters, how they respond to that. Well, Patricia, I guess in uncertain times, we grasp for historical antecedents. And Georgia's seen a somewhat similar situation before. In 1992, uh, Bill Clinton carried Georgia while ousting an incumbent Republican president. And the Senate race that year between Republican Paul Coverdell and Democrat Weish Fowler uh, went to a runoff, seen as sort of a referendum on, uh, on, on the Democrat who had just won the race. Coverdell, the Republican, ended up winning that race. I bring it up to highlight also Democrats don't have a great history uh, winning these runoff races in Georgia. Is, does that tell us anything about what might happen in January? Well, I think it really is starting to feel like Georgia's political behavior is breaking away from its past political behavior. The results of the November election have been so different. Uh, we saw a number of ticket splitters. We saw, um, obviously, Joe Biden carrying the state, uh, as you said, for the first time since 1992. And it, but it has to be said that Bill Clinton lost Georgia in 96. So it does, it's not always the formula for, for winning a state and keeping it, uh, just because they win the White House. But it, it really is a, it's a time of very dynamic change for the state. The demographics in the state are changing rapidly. And it certainly feels like that change has accelerated. And it's not just not just demographic change in terms of a, a younger and more diverse electorate, which it certainly is. We also have a number of people who have always moved to the state, but this has accelerated as well. People moving from California, New York, New Jersey, areas where people bring their democratic values with them. And you can see all of that really changing how these races are turning out and changing what leaders look like in this state right now. So I'm not relying very much on past behavior to predict future behavior. You brought up the, the influx of new voters to Georgia. Georgians can still register for the runoff election up to December 7th. Former Democratic presidential contender and billionaire Andrew Yang has stated his intention to move to Georgia. So he can vote in the runoff. Uh, you know, that's easy enough for a billionaire. But do you think Georgia's about to get a bunch of new residents? Well, we have already heard many, many complaints from from Republicans about Andrew Yang. <laughs> 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 and like, you can register to vote. That is completely unfair. And so I said, well, you know, a bunch of people from the NRSC have already moved here. How They might register to vote. And they're like, well, I'm sure they didn't. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, and 
it really is not just a laughing matter. I mean, there there was an idea that the state legislature might call a special session to change the law of when people could register to vote before a special election. And uh, the governor said yesterday that is not going to happen. There will be no, no uh, special session to change this law. We have an unusually long runoff period here. It used to be four weeks, and we used to have December runoffs. Now we have January runoffs, and that was because of the court decision that extended that time so that military and overseas ballots could uh, vote absentee and have, a, have an expectation of getting the ballot in. So that this is a new situation to have this absolutely marathon session of a runoff over Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Christmas, New Year's. You know, it's, it's every obstacle a campaign doesn't want in front of it, but they've got it. It's nine weeks to go until January 5th, the runoff. The new Congress, the 117th Congress, is sworn in on January 3rd. Good Lord only knows when Georgia is going to finish counting the ballots in the runoff election. You could have the, the Leffler seat would be filled immediately because it's a special, but you could have a period where where the Purdue seat is 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 vacant until the winner is determined. Well, we'll definitely have at least two days of being lost souls in Georgia with just one senator. What will we do? You know, but uh, <laughs> David Purdue will not be the senator uh, after January third. So third, fourth, and fifth, he will not be the senator until he uh, runs and wins re-election um, if he wins on January 5th. So we would ostensibly know who the senator would be on the 5th, uh, but as we know, it could be the 6th or 7th or 8th or, you know, crazy things happened down here recently. So we'll have to see probably if the Republicans are happy with the result, they won't demand a recount. Well, two months is an absolute lifetime in politics. Get it together, Georgia. Get it done. <laughs> We're all waiting on you. Patricia Murphy, if you're ever in D.C., the Moon Pies and RC Colas are on me. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I am frequently in D.C. in regular times, so I look forward to that. Once, I, I will, Like too. everything, once there's a vaccine, I guess. Is that what they say? <laughs> <laughs> Patricia Murphy, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Sounds good.